In 2003, a 19-year-old Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford University to start a company called Theranos. She claimed that she had discovered a way to do a whole host of medical tests from a few drops of blood. Her motivation was that she said that she was scared of needles and therefore she needed to come up with this technology. And many people were duped. Safeway invested $350 million into her company. Walgreens took 40 locations and decided they'd start taking samples to send into her company that she would run everything on a, on a machine called an Edison machine. In 2015, she was, that company, Theranos, was named the Bioscience Company of the Year by the Arizona Bioindustry Association. It started to crack when a guy named John P.A. Ioannidis, a scientist physician at Stanford, started to say, this doesn't add up. Another Greek scientist, like this guy, Eftherios Diamandis, a University of Toronto professor, said that these claims that she's making are highly exaggerated. Under pressure, Holmes decided to have then Vice President Joe Biden come and examine her facilities. He came and took a look at it and praised what was being done. However, she had set up a fake lab for him. It wasn't the lab that she was actually doing the work in. The Holmes was convicted of wire fraud on four counts of wire fraud on January the 3rd this year. It's amazing, isn't it? This young woman was able to convince a number of people, and I mean, she had a celebrity list of people who were supporting this and supporting it through their investments. You have to understand, once you get a big name, you get another big name, you get another big name, and you get another big name. But there was just something not right with what she was saying. And those scientists who started to question this... Now understand, what happens to you as a scientist? Science is about questioning what you already know. That's what science is really all about. It's about questioning what you already know. But when people start questioning something that is going... Everybody wants it to be true. They attacked that scientist. This is kind of the stuff they had to wade through. And Elizabeth Holmes was doing this. Now, here's the situation, folks. She had taken what everybody had already known, said there was something new, and then couldn't show that it was new. It was something that she was duping everybody on. I think that somewhere down the line she hoped it would be true, but it was never true. Now, before I throw any more rocks at Elizabeth Holmes... You've got to admit, in the Christian church, we've had snake oil salesmen around for a lot longer than that. 
We've had plenty of people who are trying to say, this is a new teaching that I have. This is a new word that I have from God. And what we've seen them do is, is that they have challenged those doctrines of the past. But when they are brought under scrutiny, those things that they have taught are not true whatsoever. We call those people false teachers. That's what they are. So let's get into the scripture. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be dealing with false teachers. Now, I'm probably going to make some of you angry. That's not my intent. But I'm not going to do it today, but I will be calling out names. I won't call out all of their names. The list is just too long. I'll be honest with you. The list is just too long. But I will be naming some of those people. So it says in Romans chapter 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Paul is telling these Roman people that there's going to be these people that are coming. Here's what he's saying. False teachers are a serious threat to the church. When he uses that word, I appeal to you, it could be translated, I beg of you, please. Now, we do not have any evidence that there has been any false teachers in Rome at this point. But you know what he's saying? They're coming. They're coming. False teachers are coming. They were certainly in the Philippian church. For in Philippians 3, 2, it says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You understand that false teachers are coming. They're all around us. And I can almost guarantee that some of you have listened to false teachers either on TV or on the radio or on something. My wife is an infection preventionist. She has a sign in her office. Literally, you can go in there and see it. She says, it says in there, it says, say your prayers and wash your hands because Jesus and germs are everywhere. Understand, I will say this to you. Be aware and be on your guard because false teachers are everywhere. And I have heard, even from some of our members here, they've fallen for these people. Now, they fall into these traps often because people don't really know what solid doctrine is. And it's very easy to fall into it when... I will tell you what is happening to the church in general today. To the church in general today, we are more, we are more akin to go with charisma and entertainment and excitement than we are on solid doctrine. We won't stand on it. But let me give you a pattern of false teachers. I'm going to tell you, this is a pattern that each of them follows And you can write this down. It's not in your notes, but you can write this down and you can watch this is what they'll do. The first thing they will do is they will take one verse of Scripture or a portion of Scripture or even one word. You realize that? Even one word and they'll take it completely out of context. They'll take it completely out of context. And then the second thing they'll do, they'll rush to an allegorical meaning. And an, er- uh, an allegorical definition of what that scripture actually means. Not taking it in context, but taking it and giving it an allegorical meaning. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then they, then giving that meaning, they give that meaning that appeals to the flesh. It will appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
or the pride of life. I'm telling you, what it'll do is it will deal with how you feel in your body somehow. It will deal with how much money you have and how much you possess. Or it will deal with your, your pride and the power that you think you have. Now, this is the pattern that they follow along. And then the fourth thing they do is they do it in such an exciting manner that you don't even realize what they did. They did it in such an exciting manner. It, and it is exciting. I'll give you an example. This is an example of one that I've heard. They'll read a scripture like this one. John ten thirty four. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. Now they may say something. Now this is the word of God, folks. They will say that. They've taken it completely out of context. Give it that allegorical meaning. Cats produce cats. Dogs produce dogs. And gods produce gods. That's an allegorical meaning. That's not what it means, but that's what they'll say. And so then they will say something along the lines. And so here's the situation, folks. You have been made a God. I, and they will say, even I hate to say this myself, and they'll say, I am a God. You are a God. And how did God deal with things when he needed something? He spoke to it. And then he will tell you something along the lines. It's, so you speak to your need. You need money, you speak to that money. If you need healing, you speak to that healing. If you need a promotion at work, you speak to that promotion. I heard one of them, I mean, literally heard him say, he was saying, money, come to me. And he said it over and over until he had the whole congregation saying, money, come to me. And I want you to know something, it was exciting. It was exciting. And it was a lie. It was a lie. Let's put that in context and see what it says. That comes from Psalm 82.6. It says, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. In context, God is speaking of ordained judges. He is speaking of these judges able to make judgment on people in order to determine what their fate was going to be. He was saying that God is that way. God is able to make judgment on people. And you are acting as if you were God's in this process. This is what he was talking about. He is not claiming that all believers have become God's. When you put that scripture into the context and you understand what Jesus was even talking about, and I'm not going to mention that right now, but he's talking about essentially the same thing. What you're realizing here is, is that it's not telling us that we're all going to become gods. And yet, these false teachers will do this. What did they do? Took a scripture out of context. Secondly, gave it an allegorical meaning. Third, they applied it to the flesh. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Fourth, they're exciting. So exciting that you didn't even see it coming. And you get caught up in it. So, Paul says this. He says, false teachers need to be watched. That word translated watch means to look at, observe, contemplate, to fix one's eyes upon, direct one's attention to, scrutinize. They need to be watched. But before false teachers can be watched, they must be identified. 
You must be able to recognize their heresy from the get-go, from the beginning. Even one who went to a Baptist seminary, I heard just recently, he was, he was doing a heresy called modalism. I'll talk to you about that. So even if they say, well, I went to a Baptist seminary and I'm a Baptist, I'm going to tell you what, when you're a false teacher, you're a false teacher. It doesn't matter what denomination that you came from. But it seems to me that a lot of believers would rather listen and believe things that are not true. But it makes them feel special than to hear things that are, are true. But that, those things don't grant them any special advantages over other people. For the, the corruption of, of all of us, the fallen nature of us, is such that we want to believe this sort of thing. Realize that Satan claimed that those who ate of the forbidden fruit would be like gods. That's right out of chapter 3 of Genesis. And that desire is still there. We still want to be that, those people. But we must be so grounded in doctrine that we can't be swayed by the fallen nature of our flesh. Let me give you an example that I personally have. When I was in seminary, I had trouble with a certain scripture. And I'll tell you why I had trouble with this scripture. It looks like this scripture says you can lose your salvation. Let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So I looked at those verses and I said, it looks so much to me like they're saying that we can lose our salvation. And I don't want that scripture to say that. So I determined on my own. I'm in seminary at this point. It sounds like I was a 19-year-old, doesn't it? But I wasn't. I, I determined I can translate this for myself. And I got the Greek out and I started to look at it and I started to change. Let me tell you how you do this, folks. Every word has a series of words that it can mean. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, if, you know, when you look at a word and then there's peripheral words that it can also mean. I mean, if I say that I fear God, I can also make that word reverence. I can make that, that, that mean worship. I can make that. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? You, can, you, so you take the word. And so what I started to do is take not the main meaning of the words. I started to take the peripheral meanings of the words. And I came up with a way that it didn't say that you would lose your salvation anymore. Then I went to the, the library there in seminary. Now at that time, and I may still be true, that Southwestern Seminary had the largest theological uh, library in the world. And so I started looking through commentaries. I was looking for somebody to agree with me. Finally, when I got to the ninth commentary that I went through, I found out somebody that agreed with me. Then I went to my Greek professor. And I told my Greek professor, look at how I have translated this. And I went through, I had to go through nine commentaries, but I found somebody who agreed with me. And you know what he said to me? He said, it should bother you that you had to go through nine commentaries to find someone who would agree with you. And you know, he was right. You know what I was doing? I wasn't looking for what scripture said. I was looking for what I wanted scripture to say. And that's the beginning of heresy, folks. That's really the truth. That's where you start off with heresy. 
So when you hear something new, you need to check it out with a reliable source. And over time, you will understand doctrine. It will take quite a while to know it all. And it may be that you need to go to other people that you trust, that you know are further along in the faith. And that's exactly what you really need to do. And sometimes you can simply go to the scriptures themselves, but you will find where that heresy really resides. One night, this is right after Karen and I got married. I was listening to the radio at the, of this preacher and he was preaching along and he was saying, and the Bible says and such and such and the Bible says and such and such. And I, I mean, I had the lights off and I was going, man, this is, a, this is exciting stuff what he's saying here. And so I got up, turned the lights on, you know, and I started to, and I found out the Bible didn't say any of that stuff. He was just naming out numbers and saying the names of the books of the Bible and was, the, the scriptures weren't saying that whatsoever. And I said, this guy's a heretic. This is exactly what he is. So understand, what are they doing? Take those scriptures out of context. Rush to an allegorical explanation. Appeal to the flesh. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. Pride of life. And do it all in such an exciting manner that you don't even know that they've done it. And here's one other thing they do. Occasionally, you will hear one of these false teachers preach a perfectly correct doctrinal message. And why is that? Because when you do that and you go, look what this guy, he preached right here. You have to say he's right at least once. And what we are is like little children. We think that they're right once. They're always right. That is absolutely just has no truth in it. False teachers cause divisions in the church. That is because they seek their own followers. They are cultish in this. And they, they may never state this, but their goal is to take members with them. For false teaching sets the mature and doctrinally sound against the immature people who have been duped. And this is the reason that discipleship is so important. Because you see, when you have discipleship, that disciple can go to that disciple maker and say, is this true? I've got somebody that I'm connected with. And maybe even that disciple maker doesn't know, but they can explore it together in the scripture and go to some reliable sources. And when there is no solid bond between the disciple and disciple maker, there is an opportunity for false teachers to take hold. This was extremely difficult in the New Testament church. Realize they are winning people to Christ quickly. There are just numbers of people that are just being won to the Lord. They do not have a New Testament formed at this point. And so false teachers were having a heyday. This is a rule of thumb, though it is not always true. A rule of thumb is is that a true teacher brings the church together. And a false teacher tears the church apart. Use that as a rule of thumb. See, this is true if the church seeks maturity. A true teacher will, will uh, if a church is seeking maturity, they will, they will bond together on this. And they will not fight. You see, immature churches fight over preferences. Mature churches will have disagreements and maybe even fights, but it will be over principles. I want you to hear this from me. I do not want this church to be a fully mature church. You heard me right the first time. 
I do not want this church to be a fully mature church. See, a fully mature church isn't reaching people. You've got to have those immature people among you. You've got to have that if you are reaching people. I don't want us to be fully mature. So that the possibility exists for a outreach-minded church to even split. I realize how dangerous that is. So the outreach-minded church must be more diligent in watching those who would, who would come in and take their less mature people away. I want us to be that church that is diligent in looking after the people who have just come to know the Lord. And they may not know what is going on on the outside like this. For false teachers cause believers to stumble. See, doctrine is something that you need to be convinced of. When it is challenged, you should have enough roots that the roots will not allow it to be torn out. See, questioning something that you already know to be true. Now, understand, you may, not, you may not know what is true, but if you already know that this is solid doctrine, this is solid in the Scripture itself, it says, but when you start questioning that, it can lead to disobedience. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. Did they not know they weren't supposed to eat from that tree? They knew it already. What did Satan say? Has God said... Do you understand what he was doing was questioning that. And they, see, they lead you away from God's word. And when they lead you away from God's word, they can cause you to stumble. For Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. We've got to be a people of the word, a maturing people, always having those, those new, more immature people with us and pulling them along and nurturing them and guiding them. Now, Baptist a few years ago, and maybe still do, I don't know, I haven't been listening to the Baptist for some time, but some wanted to say that the Bible was inerrant a few years ago. Others wanted to say it was infallible. Others wanted to say it was a meant to be a guide that will, it was a guide to us. I want you to hear I'm all three. I believe that the Bible is inherent in its original form. I believe it's infallible, so it is completely trustworthy. And I believe it's the source of our faith in day-to-day living. Does that mean that I need to interpret the scriptures on every last thing in non-essential matters? No, I don't. It doesn't even concern me. In other words, I can fellowship with other churches. They, have women, they don't have women deacons. That doesn't bother me that they don't have women deacons. I'm not out there to change their church. I can fellowship with that church. We have women deacons. I, I'm, I'm good with that because I believe it's very biblical. But if we are to keep from stumbling, we do have to make some agreements. I'm not trying to make us into this, what we were so scared of becoming. I want us to say that we have some things that we believe. The Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Jesus' substitutionary atonement is the only means of salvation. Amen? Amen. Jesus is a person in the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Jesus was born of a virgin. Amen? Jesus was physically resurrected. Amen? And Jesus is coming back. Amen? Amen. Amen. You see? 
that we can agree on those things. And when you get that first one down, actually, that this is the word of God, the rest of it just falls in line anyway. For when we see a false teacher, false teachers are to be avoided. That's what the scripture says. They're to be avoided. Don't give them a foothold, it says. Too many people have been led astray because they have turned aside to hear something that was exciting. And it was exciting. But you cannot follow God by going the wrong direction. We had a young lady in this church. I hate to say this, but it's true. And because her family moved, she moved with them. She was growing in the Lord. There were some wonderful things that were going on in her life. And I don't know where she's living now, but I saw on her Facebook post that she was attending a church that was led by a well-known false teacher. And it hurt me down to the core because I thought, I didn't do my job. I didn't instill in her what needed to be instilled. So let me say this to you, finally. I want you to know that I am not the final word on everything. I want you to check out what I say with what the Bible says. You hear what I'm saying? I want you to check me out. Determine whether I'm saying what the Bible says. Now, sometimes I'll make a mistake. A mistake is a mistake. I mean, you understand, it's not doctrinally wrong. It's just a mistake. I got that. But if I ever get to be a false teacher, I want you to get out of this church as fast as you can and take as many people as you can with you because I don't want to hurt you. And it will hurt you. I'm not saying that because I want to be arrogant about that I could never be a false teacher. I want you to know I can be as sinful as anybody else. And I want you to know that if you ever hear that, you need to do something about it. Don't just sit there and take it. Would you pray with me now? Father, I pray that we'll